Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Yesterday, the hundreds of climate scientists who make up the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released their latest massive report, the sixth in a series stretching back decades and the first since 2013. Listen, this is the Bay Area. You've probably already heard the news about the report and likely understood the core problems of climate change many years ago. Under any scenario scientists consider, we need to act and we need to act fast. So today, we have a panel for you to talk about what needs to be done, the politics that will underpin the future, and which technologies are ready to go. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. In 2009... I remember covering an intergovernmental panel on climate change meeting that was taking place in Bali. And 12 years ago, the scientific consensus on climate change was fully established. Burning too much fossil fuel, along with a host of other human activities, was deranging the atmosphere, and the consequences would be rapid climate change. The parameters of the world in which all human civilization had developed would be thrown off. It would snow at the wrong times and too much. Heat waves would strike at times and with an intensity no one alive had ever seen. There would be floods and fires. And this is all happening now. If you live in California, you've seen the fires with your own eyes. In a saner world, the world's governments would have been able to take more aggressive action, but that's not what happened, in large part because the United States' corporate power has blocked truly meaningful action, let alone taken global leadership. So here we are, 12 years on, 40 years after the science of climate change suggested serious action, and the clock is counting down quickly. Every year that goes by makes the challenge harder. You could despair. I have despaired. But not today and not on this show. Instead, we're talking to people who've been tracking and building what's possible to avert the worst effects from climate change. And they're going to tell us from their own distinct perspectives where they find hope and how they see us getting out of this mess. Joining us are Kendra Pierre-Lewis, climate reporter and producer of the podcast, How to Save a Planet. Welcome, Kendra. Thanks so much for having me. 
We also have Kate Aronoff, a staff writer at The New Republic and co-author of Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. Welcome, Kate. Thanks for having me. And we have Jason Jacobs, host of the podcast, My Climate Journey. Welcome, Jason. Excited to be here. Thanks. Uh, Kendra, ahead of the IPCC report, you put together a thread with your thoughts from your last year working on the podcast, which looks at climate solutions. What's really working there taught you about the perspective we need to bring to climate change? So I've known for things. Um, I've known for a while that people, there are a lot of people in this country who know that climate change is a problem that are very concerned about climate change. But the gap is sort of between understanding the problem and recognizing what they can do about it. And so much of what we're fed is um, buy this product instead of that product. By you know, it's very much still sort of framed in this consumer thing and not sort of in the bigger social systems that we're embedded in and that we're part of and that those are the things that we need the needle to tip. So most of the time I live in New York City and I don't drive. And that's, I don't drive not because I'm a good person. I don't drive because I'm a climate reporter. I don't drive because I live in New York City and driving in New York City is miserable and there's a decent mass transit system, right? Mm-hmm. That's a system that I'm embedded in. And we need more systems like this that give people the option to take mass transit, to ride a bike, instead of saying, you need to be a hero, you need to be a virtuous person and you know, suffer because in a lot of the country, it is very difficult to navigate, the, you know, around without a car. So how do you get from, a, if you're not in New York City, how do you get a transit system put into your community? How do you get a bike lane put into your community? How do you make sure homes aren't being built into flood zones? These are the things that people need to answer. And this is sort of like what we're not giving people, how they're not being served. Yeah. You know, Jason, I, I wanted to have you on because I've watched your trajectory. You know, you started a, a tech company, RunKeeper, and sold it, and then kind of changed your whole life a few years ago so that you could really put your shoulder to the wheel on on climate change. Maybe you could give us, you know, kind of three three quick lessons from your time in making this transition into working full-time on climate change as a problem. Uh, sure. So it's, yeah, it's been about three years. And when I came in, I really didn't know where I would fit or what I would bring to the table. So I kind of put me aside and just focused on uh, learning and talking to as many smart people as I could. Uh, One, as Kate was saying, just the systems nature of the problem, uh, I have come to believe there really are no silver bullets. uh, And the more progress you make on one thing, the more it kind of softens the landscape to make progress on others and progress begets progress, momentum begets momentum. And the same way there's negative feedback loops, there's positive feedback loops. That's one. Uh, Another is just that uh, when I came in, my first wave of questions was like, are we screwed? You know, is it too late? And actually I've I uh, I think the magnitude of the problem is probably bigger than I was fearing, but the uh, the understanding and comprehension of what needs to happen and our ability to bring those things about is much greater than than I imagined. So it's it's not that we don't have a, a a steep mountain to climb; it's incredibly steep and and getting steeper. But it we know what to do. So that's mm-hmm. kind of a, a second. Uh, and and then uh, and then a third is is just that I think a lot of people obsess about should I work on this thing is that more impactful than that thing and what do the spreadsheets say and what does the math say and I mean that matters for sure 
but what you bring to the table, what you're good at, what your life logistics are, what your risk profile is, uh, what's going to bring you joy and what, what you're going to have kind of the wherewithal to like the endurance to see through over the long term matters a lot too. So, so even if it's something that might not be quite as impactful, but it's impactful and much more impactful than not working in this area, then that is a win. And, and I wouldn't like hang your head in shame about it. Like just you know, pick up a shovel and do the best you can and, and doing the best you can is better than not doing anything and don't overthink it. So those are the three. And impact there means just actually is able to contribute to reducing carbon emissions. Well, I mean, certainly carbon emissions is a part of it, but that's another thing I've, I've learned if, if I can add a fourth is just how interrelated all, the, all these things are. Uh, you know, the, the uh, climate change and uh, um, it, it, it is inter- interrelated to things like uh, social justice. Uh, it, I mean, that was a, a big learning for me about the fact that, well, it's easy to kind of villainize uh, the fossil fuel industry as an example, but there's still a billion plus people that don't have access to basic electricity. Um, so how do you, how do you weight morally, um, uh, you know, cl- cl- climate, uh, climate change and uh, you know, versus things like energy abundance or, or energy poverty. Um, so uh, it, it's, a, so carbon is part of it, but uh, you know, education, equality, uh, abundance, um, I, 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 when I dream of a future, it's, it's a future that is more sustainable, more abundant, and, and more, more just. But I, I don't think you can really decouple those things. Kate Aronoff, uh, staff writer at The New Republic. You know, a, uh, a, another climate thinker that I have read a lot over the years is Alex Steffen. And one of his things is to say, you know, in a world of steepening problems, speed is everything. You know, speed, speed, speed um, in deploying solutions. Um, so what's something you've seen, assuming you agree with the premise of the question, what's something you've seen that's gone faster than expected um, over the last decade? Sure. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I think back a lot to 2018 when uh, Democrats had just won back the House of Representatives. And, you know, I had been a climate reporter for a few years at that point. And really all signs sort of pointed toward a really sort of deflating conversation about carbon prices and sort of market tweaks and these real kind of nibbles around the edges of what climate policy would be. And, you know, almost as soon as new Congress people were, you know, getting to the Capitol, uh, there was a sit-in by the Sunrise Movement in uh, then aspiring House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office, um, demanding a Green New Deal, right? And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez showed up and all of a sudden, you know, not overnight, but but very, very quickly, um, not only, you know, in the United States were we having a very different conversation about what climate politics should be. Uh, but, you know, that had sort of ripple effects elsewhere in the world. There, you know, were uh, uh, ruling parties who won uh, re-elections running on a Green New Deal, uh, you know, in places like Spain and South Korea. Um, the European Union has its Green Deal, which, you know, is very complicated and not, you know, necessarily a model, but um, is, uh, is, is, I think, speaks to just how much can 
how much progress can be made in a short amount of time to go from talking about the climate crisis and climate policy is this matter of sacrifice of sort of, you know, making sure that the market kind of work itself out um, to a large scale conversation about big investments, right, in uh, decarbonization, in the social safety net, even in creating jobs, making the climate conversation a jobs conversation that happened very quickly. And I think it's easy to forget, you know, especially for folks um, like me who, you know, have, have our nose in the, the infrastructure <laughs> fight and all this, uh, all this, all this stuff. Um, that, well, I think you know, people, this... yeah, tend to think of technology as the thing that has these sort of, you know, non-linearities where they just sort of things jump quickly in, in technology. But you're saying the same thing also sometimes happens on in the political realm. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the core ingredient to that is, is, is social movements. You know, I, I think that is the sort of key driver of change. And I just don't, you know, however good a politician is, however, you know, well-intentioned, I don't think they are incentivized sort of structurally um, to do very much on their own. So, you know, I think that's, uh, when we talk about speed, I don't, I don't see how that, that sort of happens without um, massive, massive pressure from below. Yeah. Jason, from your perspective, what's something that's gone faster than expected? Uh, I, th- I think that uh, capitalists smell money, um, that that's faster than, than expected for a long time. Um, uh, when, uh, you know, venture capital firms lost a lot of money in clean tech, it, it was kind of barren in early stage technology. A, a lot of people kind of ran for, I hate to, I was going to say greener pastures, but maybe there's a, a better <laughs> word that, uh, um, that that I could use, and, and and even when I came in in late 2018, uh, I mean, a bunch of the um, traditional technology industry uh, peers, uh, whether it's entrepreneurs or executives or investors, they they thought I was, uh, you know, on some. Yeah, like we tried that; it didn't work. Yeah. Yeah, they, I mean, they essentially were like, "Oh, so you're essentially foregoing making a living, right?" Oh, like, uh, you know, oh, good for you, like what, right? And. Um, and we we really believe that that you can intertwine uh, profit and impact, and it, it does require some differences structurally. It does require maybe a, a different set of players. It, it does require maybe different timelines or different appetites for risk. But but ultimately, you can do do both. Um, and and, and a we lot will talk of- about that more when we come back. We're talking about actionable solutions for climate change with Jason Jacobs, host of the podcast My Climate Journey, Kate Aronoff, staff writer at the New Republic and co-author of Planet to Win: Why We Need a Green New Deal, and Kendra Pierre Lewis, climate reporter and producer of the podcast How to Save a Planet. What are your questions about climate change solutions? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We'll be back with more. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about actionable solutions for climate change with Jason Jacobs, host of the podcast My Climate Journey, Kate Aronoff, staff writer at The New Republic and co-author of Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal, and Kendra Pierre-Lewis, a climate reporter and producer of the podcast How to Save a Planet. And right before the break, Jason Jacobs was talking about the sort of capitalist approach to um, climate change uh, mitigation and, and change, balancing profit and uh, impact in reducing carbon emissions and other things. And I want to ask you, Kendra, do you think we get to climate equilibrium with something that resembles our current uh, model of capitalism? 
no, uh, it's unfortunately, I mean, I, I think one of the things you're talking about, one of the things that sort of surprised you or that was moving faster than you thought it was, for me, it's the way in which the climate movement and people within the climate movement have moved towards intersectionality and their recognition that the only way we can get from sort of an extractive economy to a renewable economy is by fixing past harms. So like the, the focus on just transition and the focus and the recognition that many of the harms that we're currently suffering are a product of the system that we're currently embedded in and that we need to change aspects of that system in order to have a truly sustainable future or our future will be far less equitable than it is even now. Yeah. You know, there's, I think the historians of capitalism have convinced me that there's a lot of different kinds of capitalism through time, um, each of which has its own particular features. Um, And I am curious, Kate, whether you think in the next, let's call it 10 years, you would see a major movement away from capitalism to fix climate change in the U.S., or you see something else happening, something uh, sticking with the current model. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's worth just sort of parsing out terms, right? So I think, you know, capitalism is a belief system. It's a sort of political system. It is a system of distribution and production. And uh, I think it's worth sort of breaking those <laughs> those things down when, when thinking about this mm-hmm. question, right? I do think that um, we will probably see um, capitalist distribution and production systems create, you know, a good number of the things that we will need to navigate toward a future without fossil fuels, right? So solar panels, wind turbines, we probably will not see a sort of worker-owned alternative uh, to, you know, big production facilities, right, built within the next 10 years. Um, I think the real question for me is sort of on what terms is this transition happening? So, um, you know, like, like Kendra mentioned, there's been a lot of attention, right, from years of pushing from environmental justice and climate justice advocates um, to ensure that, you know, equity is really at the heart of any transition away from fossil fuels um, that looks out both for folks who have lived fence line with fossil fuel impacts for many, many years, um, and workers who, you know, have have live in communities that have been built up around um, around certain kinds of extraction, whether that's coal or oil, um, so be it. So, you know, I think we can see um, cer- certain things we might recognize, right, as as characteristic of a capitalist economy, um, certainly existing for a very long time, but. You know, my guess, right, would be that if we really move to take on uh, the climate crisis at scale, um, that whatever we want to call the world we're living in in 20 or 30 years, if we have done that job, um, it won't look like any sort of capitalism um, we know today and whether it even makes sense, right, to call that capitalism, I think. Because there'll be a lot more state planning, say, of production, industrial policy, things that maybe harken back to previous eras in the U.S., but have largely gone unused by U.S. government over the last, you know, few decades? Uh, Sure. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, you bring up a good point and I won't (laughs) won't ramble so long about this, but if you look at something like World War II, right, um, the government, you know, nationalized several factories, uh, controlled prices very closely, things that today, you know, the right would obviously call like aggressive sort of state planning. But in the context that was done, right, to uh, fight a war, to do this thing that the nation had decided was important. And so we did it and we put resources behind it. Now, you know, I think <laughs> I think it's very contextually specific, right? Mm-hmm. So if the U.S. government were to declare uh, the 
to declare, declare the climate crisis an emergency and treat it like one, we would probably something, uh, see something pretty similar. But, you know, the U.S. government has not done that. And yeah. so we have not seen it. We have not seen this government really treat uh, climate change like a crisis. Yeah. Jason Jacobs, host of the podcast, My Climate Journey. Um, I assume that your answer to this question is somewhat different and that you would like to see capitalist modes of production be the way that we solve uh, climate change. No, uh, I, w- I wouldn't like anything to be the way that we solve climate change because I think that uh, every way has a job to, to do. So I've heard uh, one uh, venture capitalist in particular say that there's, you know, give, give, uh, give him 14 entrepreneurs and climate change would be solved. Like, <laughs> I think that dialogue is really detrimental and uh, harmful. I, I don't, I don't believe that at all. Uh, I think innovation has a role to play, but uh, I mean, I, it, it is far from the only role. It cannot do it on its own. Government has a massive role that it that it needs to play. Um, I'm not. I think it's worth asking the question of um, you know what should happen versus what will happen realistically, and being intellectually honest about what's possible. But at the same time, we should dare to dream. So it's it's a hard balance to to reckon with. I, I do think that market forces are very powerful, but I also agree with Kate that. Uh, you know, that that unbridled market forces are harmful, especially if they're not factoring in the externalities and that the, you know, the government needs to to do its job to help. And as a democracy, we need to let it. I think I want to ask you a quite specific question, Jason, on, you know, we we know that there's I, I think it's roughly about a, a hundred companies um, that generate the, the majority of climate emissions. Kate, you can um, check me on that number if, I, if I'm wrong. It's about 70 percent. Um, and what do we do with those hundred companies? I mean, to me, this seems like one of the the crucial things. It's like, what do we do with the you know their their private um, oil companies, their state oil, state owned um, fossil fuel companies, or people who are involved in all kinds of manufacture of, of infrastructure? And it seems sort of one of the key U.S. policy questions is: Do we essentially? coddle those companies into acting in accordance with a a climate we can live with? Or do we do something else? So what do you think, Jason? Uh, Yeah, so I think the tendency is to have these headlines and these controversial statements of this big, bold thing one way or this big, bold thing another way. But but for me, uh, I think you kind of judo it right it's like one you put in place principal leadership two you have a market that that you know structurally that that can get away from short-term quarterly thinking uh three you uh you know you have incentives four you have mandates and and uh and and force their hand five you educate the populace and so when new grads for example are choosing their employers they refuse to work at companies that aren't out out in front uh leading um six you put pressure on them from adjacent companies in the supply chain you know customers of theirs or or others that are influential or the capital markets the stuff that the the black products of the world are starting to do but i don't think it's one thing that you do i think everything needs to change but i i can understand why uh you know one could push back and and say that uh that that if everything needs to change then nothing will change and that something needs to step up and have accountability which i i think is valid too yeah kendra peerless what do you think the big, the big oil companies and the, and the big contributors to climate change through time? I mean, obviously, we're all sort of living, if you look at the history of the big oil companies in this country and sort of how we got to this point, a lot of it is the systemic efforts on their 
point to kind of make us as dependent on fossil fuels as we are. And then of course, you know, there's been a ton of evidence on the ways in which they have covered the science of climate change, how their own scientists were telling them that they were warming the climate, how they actively funded disinformation campaigns. And so there's clearly a sense of liability on their part. The other part that I think is missing is often when we talk about these conversations, it frames it as like some invisible person is supposed to do these things. Um, as opposed to we are also responsible for the society that we live in and we need to find ways of stepping up and holding institutions and people accountable. And I think that's kind of the thing that's been missing, you know, really, I mean, my entire life, but like, it seems like, um, it feels like we've become more and more and more sort of disengaged from our social political systems. And the expectation, if at all, is that we show up every two years and we cast a ballot and that's the only sort of way that we have to hold systems accountable. And I think what we really need to do sort of socially is we have to have a better understanding of how social change happens. And we have to start doing more than just voting. Um, yeah. And I do want to get to some of the ties between, you know, this big global problem and local situations. And I want to bring in um, Elizabeth from Oakland, who has one of our, our local situations here in California. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm a homeowner in Oakland. And in 2014, um, I made an investment in rooftop solar. I purchased them. I didn't really do much of a calculation about you know, whether they would pay for themselves. I didn't expect them to pay for themselves. I just figured for me as an environmentalist, it was worth it. And there's a couple of reasons. One is I learned about this a week to 10 days ago. And if there's other rooftop solar people listening, there's currently a petition before the California Public Utilities Commission. And maybe you guys know more about this than I do. From PG&E, Southern California Edison, and the San Diego investor-owned utility that will um, just double the price of rooftop solar. Um, if I stay with PG&E, and, and if this petition is successful, um, I would have to pay between $50 and $90 a month to PG&E just to connect to the, to the grid. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there's a couple of things. What is your opinion about the future of rooftop solar? I made the investment in 2014. I'm looking for ways to, um, you know, connect with other people like me. Uh, I do want to be engaged. I have difficulty doing that strictly sitting in front of my home computer. But anyway, that's that's my situation. I'd like to hear your comments and thoughts about it. Yeah. How about um, Kate? Have you um, covered it all, the utilities and and rooftop solar um, kind of back and forth? Yeah, I mean, a a little less, you know, specifically about about this uh, uh, about this petition. But um, yeah, I mean, the the, uh, I mean, PG&E has. Uh, you know, a long, a long history of causing wildfires, sort of legally speaking, um, you know, just pointing to uh, sort of court decisions on that front. Um, and in general, you know, utilities at the state level, especially have been so, so active, investor-owned utilities in particular have been so active um, in pushing through really regressive uh, anti, anti-solar legislation. And, you know, it's interesting to hear this, which I, I wasn't familiar with before, um, before hearing the caller talk about it, but um, you know, we think of California as being this sort of um, beacon of a pro-solar policy of having this this really generous uh, 
uh, you know, generous offers for, for folks who want to make the switch over, over to, uh, to renewable power. But, you know, as, as you see, there is still, at the end of the day, uh, these companies have a mandate to make a lot of money, right, in the sort of bizarre, you know, circumscribed um, way that they can do that uh, within the sort of, uh, you know, early 20th century regulatory framework that's that's set out, which is, you know, outdated in, um, in so many ways, but... And technological um, framework, too, of just building centralized power plants with large distribution, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I think, you know, especially with the news about the IPCC report yesterday, um, if folks are really, you know, looking for something to do, you know, something to, like, uh, get involved with to, you know, find other folks who... Uh, they can, you know, talk to about these things, you know, places like the their public utilities commissions, which exist in every state by, you know, a number of different names. Um, but, you know, that is a place where uh, actively, activism can go a really long way, um, in part because a lot of these uh, commissions are really not used to people showing up to them um, and, and, you know, making their voice heard. Now, the California Public Utility Commission, there's a, <laughs> that might be a little bit different because there's such a, you know, muscular climate movement uh, in, uh, in, in, in the, in the state. you know, yeah. in the Bay Area and LA across the state. Um, but, you know, I think there, that, that, you know, just means for folks in California that there's more, um, you know, more groups to plug into uh, if, if you're interested in sort of fighting off stuff like this. Um, we've got a comment from Andrew who writes, you know, we're experiencing the CO2 we emitted in the 80s. The next several dozen years will be totally catastrophic, regardless if we turn off all carbon emissions today or not. We need a miracle technology at this point, And to feel hopeless about the climate crisis is a hallmark of my generation based on the given information from scientists. And I wanted to take this comment as a way to kind of think about this sort of, you know, magical techno fix. Um, and I wanted to make the analogy to the to the vaccine, um, which we, you know, these vaccines work great, but they've been hung up on these more social factors. Um, Kendra, Pierre-Louis, what, what can we learn from how the COVID-19 vaccine has rolled out about sort of how techno fixes for uh, the climate might actually play out in amongst this, you know, more complex web of, of social interactions in our society? I mean, it's interesting. I don't know. So I think to start with, it's worth recognizing that like obviously in order to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, we are going to need some, some level of technology. And for the most part, we a lot of that technology already exists. There's a question around removing CO2 from the atmosphere that's like more of a question mark. But in terms of just getting our emissions low enough, generally with the, you know, we know how to do pretty much everything but decarbonizing airplanes. Um, so like the technology sort of exists, but something that I think is really interesting about the COVID vaccine and the way that it's rolled out is that you sort of have two groups of people and often it's framed as like, so people who accept science and people who deny science. And I don't think that's actually the framework. I think there's people who kind of want to go back to life the way it was pre-pandemic and pretend the pandemic didn't happen. And then those of us who have sort of accepted that the pandemic is real and are sort of moving within that infrastructure. And so you kind of saw it throughout, even before the vaccines kind of were rolled out, like the people who wanted to go back to indoor dining, even though it could literally kill them, right? And then there are other people, like, you know, snowshoes sold out last summer, last year, you know, there was a snowshoe shortage. There was a whole realm of people who were like, right, we're in a pandemic. And so I'm going to reorient my life to the reality that we're in a global pandemic. And so normally I go to the bars and I go whatever, and I'm going to go hiking and I'm going to go camping and I'm going to do all of these things that are different from what I did before my pandemic life, but are still, you know, 
we're now in our second summer and it, I don't know if you've been to REI recently, but they're still sold out. So people are still sort of engaging in these kinds of activities and people have pivoted and shifted. And that's the fundamental tension I think within climate is that there are people who are going to want to keep living the way we're living, even if the way we're living is causing them pain. And if you look at the United States, you know, we have mass incarceration, we have mass poverty, we have like so many social problems, right? And moving to a regenerative economy or uh, can allow us to address some of these social infrastructures while we're addressing these social issues while we're addressing climate, right? It can allow us to live a better life. And there will be people who push back against it because, you know, the devil you know is better than, I don't know, the angel you don't know, I guess, <laughs> to put it in biblical terms. But it, so there will, I think, be that tension there. The real important thing is recognizing and finding the capacity to kind of overcome that. And who out there, if people want to read the people who've been thinking about that, that, that exact connection that you're talking about, where, where would you go? Um, oh, man, you're putting me on the spot. I need to noodle on that a little bit. Okay. <laughs> Kate, do you want to take that one? They could read your stories, of course. <laughs> Kate. Sorry. Yeah, I might also... Um... Fine, I'll let you. I'll let you pass, and I'll ask you. I'll ask you all three of you at the end uh, what uh, what recommended reading you might have for people who want to <laughs> go deeper on on some of those questions. We're talking about uh, climate change solutions with Kendra Pierre Lewis, climate reporter and producer of the podcast How to Save a Planet. Kate Aronoff, staff writer at the New Republic and co-author of Planet to Win: Why We Need a Green New Deal. And Jason Jacobs, host of the podcast My Climate Journey. And we also want to hear from you. What are your questions about? climate change solutions? What do you think is a crucial action to take now? And what's the role for resistance, which we'll be talking about after the break? Give us now a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about climate change with Kendra Pierre-Lewis, climate reporter and producer of the podcast How to Save a Planet, Kate Aronoff, staff writer at The New Republic and co-author of Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal, and Jason Jacobs, host of the podcast My Climate Journey. One of our listeners, Jason, had a follow-up for you. Um, she, Jane writes, I agree with your guest that social justice and racial justice are all a part of the climate issue, but his statement that carbon emissions are only a part of the problem sounds like he's echoing the fossil fuel industry's playbook. He also said that others in the world will need fossil fuels to allow them to have electricity. This is not true. Developing countries are skipping fossil fuels and getting power by renewables. We have until 2030, nine years to reduce carbon emissions by 50%. That's the reality. Do you want to respond to Jane, Jason? Uh, sure. Well, uh, for example, let's say there was a greener technology that was carbon free, but the plants uh, had all kinds of ill side effects, but were put in the communities that least had the resources to be able to fight and keep them out. Uh, I mean, that doesn't seem just to me. And if you're not in one of those communities, maybe you don't care because you're focused exclusively on carbon. But as a society, it seems like the wrong thing to do. So that's where I, I, I have trouble decoupling those things. And it's certainly not an area that I'm an expert in, but it's one that my eyes have really been open to as I've been uh, learning over the past few years. Yeah. And do you, uh, 
Kate Aronoff, do you agree with the goal there, too, which is 2030 uh, carbon emissions down by 50 percent? Yeah, I mean, I think that's if anything, uh, if anything, a little, a little too lenient for for somewhere like the U.S. Uh, you know, the the IPCC has been pretty clear, right? When we say um, zeroing zeroing out carbon emissions by 2050, that's for the whole world, right? And in the U.S., we um, have the resources to not only be able to decarbonize very, very rapidly uh, within in our own country, but also to help make a uh, transition, you know, to make the sorts of leapfrogging over, uh, over, you know, gas or oil, um, make that possible for, for other parts of the world, which, you know, don't have the types of resources that we, that we have. So, you know, if anything in the U.S., I would say, um, you know, 2030 is probably a good goal for 50%, right? But um, we should be going as fast as humanly possible. Um, another uh, listener, Alex, writes, we simply have to make emissions of CO2 and methane expensive. Most people will do nothing to stop climate change if gasoline, jet fuel, natural gas, and fossil-based electricity remain cheap. There are affordable alternatives with improvements in new technologies coming every day. We also need to avoid costly distractions like direct air capture and hydrogen fuel. These are impractical and unnecessary. And I, I wanted to read this comment only because when I came into writing about climate and green technology um, in the aughts, this was this was essentially the wisdom that essentially what we needed to do to fix climate change, both in the U.S. and around the world, was some kind of carbon tax, carbon cap and trade, carbon cap and dividend, like some, we needed to make uh, CO2 more expensive. And it, it just hasn't really worked. Um, Kendra, Pierre, Lewis, is it still true, though, that that would be the thing that we can and should do? I mean, it's not obviously it's not a bad idea to make carbon more expensive to make, um, but it doesn't work because basically you'd have to make it so expensive that it would be prohibitive to do anything and we still need people to do things. Um, I'm living in an apartment that's fueled by natural gas. Um, not because I enjoy um, having natural gas as a heating source, but because I'm a renter and I don't have any say in what my home runs on. So you can make it super expensive. You can make me pay quite a lot of money to heat my home and maybe I will heat my home less and will burn slightly fewer emissions. You know, I've definitely done that before when I had no money, but like what you need is me to have a way of heating my home that isn't fossil fuel based. And that part gets missed. There's an assumption that if you make it expensive enough, people will pivot, but there's no incentive for my landlord to change my heating source because he doesn't pay the bill. I do. So there's a mismatch in incentives right there. And you see these over and over again. That's why the stick alone doesn't work. You also need a carrot, right? Like, so if you are going, um, yeah, you also need a carrot, which is like, you need to have a viable alternative. Um, and for many people, the way things are structured, they're, isn't one. Yeah. Kate, do you want to take that on too? I know that you, you've you tackled this in your writing sometimes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I would echo everything Kendra said. Um, and I think a lot of, you know, the frustration around, or a lot of the fixation around carbon pricing, particularly through the 90s and 2000s, uh, came out of sort of seeing the world like an economic model, right? And so in an economic model, if you raise the price of something, uh, fewer people will consume it. And you assume, right, that they are making different choices, that they are um, consuming more uh, low carbon things, that they have installed solar panels, that they've made all these um, suite of choices, right, which, which have enabled them to, to make that switch. And that's, you know, sort of how the model works. But 
as Kendra was saying, right? That's not how humans <laughs> operate. That's not how our economy is structured, right? To enable those sorts of easy choices to be made. And, you know, as in part as a result of that, we've seen um, things like the Gilets Jaunes, right? In, in France, where, you know, the government looked to raise the cost of fuel. And uh, as a result, many folks, um, you know, very complicated movement, I'll, I'll just say that, but um, many people who did not, you know, have access to a regular train line who did have to drive to work were really, um, you know, upset about, about this, this change being forced upon them in no small part, right? Because that revenue stream that the fuel, uh, fuel price was, hike was, was meant to fill was, uh, filling a, a tax cut for, for very wealthy people, right? And that's not hard for, for most people to sort of, um, most people to work out. And so I think, you know, in an economic model, a carbon price can be something that makes a lot of sense. Outside of that, it's a lot thornier. Not to say that carbon pricing is a bad idea necessarily, but, um, you know, certainly in the United States, it has not been the most efficient route toward, um, toward climate policy. Yeah. And uh, just to quote you back to yourself before I go back to the phones, uh, one of the one of the most interesting lines that I, I've read of yours was, "The lives of one percenters make it worse as we scale back emissions, but the ninety nine percent can get a lot better." Um, let's. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the role of uh, direct action and resistance here. Um, let's bring in John from Los Altos. Welcome, John. Hi. Um, yeah, I've been involved in a number of direct actions. Um, with some groups here in the Bay Area. Also, I went to Minnesota for the um, Stop Line 3 protests. I've got mm -hmm. two arrests under my belt this year, uh, and I'm paying kind of a personal price for this. Uh, but speaking to the Bay Area direct actions, uh, much of it focuses on the financial angle, um, basically the way that uh, banks and investment institutions, so think BlackRock, Chase, Wells Fargo, Citibank fund fossil fuel projects to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars or trillions if you look around the world. And I, what I've been, I noticed what one of the callers, I'm sorry, one of the guests at one point mentioned the muscular Bay Area <laughs> uh, environmental scene. And yes, it's true, probably compared to most places, but I got to tell you, it feels like we're just, you know, tilting out windmills when we're out mm -hmm. there protesting the banks and we don't mm -hmm. get a lot of attention. We don't get a lot of press coverage. There's not much dialogue. Um, and the banks are really complicit in us continuing to do this to, because of the amount of funding that they provide ongoing for all kinds of fossil fuel projects. It's mm -hmm. enormous. Yeah, thank I you for that. Yeah, no, thank you, John. Um, and Jason Jacobs, I wanted to ask you what you've learned about sort of changing the financial uh, e engineering that allows fossil fuel projects um, to, to go forward versus, say, cleaner alternatives or, or other kinds of infrastructure. Uh, yeah, so why well, I, I can't say I'm particularly well versed to uh, speak on that question specifically, but one thing uh, related that I observed is, uh, and, it, and it was an interesting learning for me, is there's been a lot of talk about divest and, you know, if you if you keep fossil fuel companies in your portfolio, you're you're doing the wrong thing. And um, and then recently we saw uh, with, with the shareholder activism, uh, the fact that that several Exxon board members were uh, replaced. And and that's not to say uh, divesting is bad. I, I think divesting is good, um, but it's also not the only 
not, not the only way. And, uh, and similar as it relates to, um, I think the distinction between, um, uh, you know, swapping out fossil fuel uh, versus, um, you know, working with the, the fossil fuel companies. And it's a slippery slope because certainly uh, there's been a bunch of ill intentions and malice and withholding information and misinformation and, and things like that. Um, at the same time, they're extremely well capitalized and have a lot of the expertise that, that we need to, to, to make some of these transitions. So not, not answering the question directly, but answering it to the best of, uh, yeah. of my ability without, without speaking over my head. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank yeah. you. Thank you, Jason. I think, you know, Kate, I'm, I'm hoping maybe you can resolve um, a quite difficult the dynamic that I see on the ground. One is, you know, the kind of direct action against pipelines or, you know, in Oakland, a coal export terminal on the one hand. And then the sort of really huge solutions like the Federal Reserve coming into play to help us fund, you know, the decarbonization of the entire economy. How do you think on those two scales, you know, really down on the ground, stopping individual projects? And then, you know, the massive kind of monetary policy that we probably need in order to, you know, fund massive new infrastructure? Yeah, I think they're really closely, closely linked. And, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to talk to some of the folks uh, involved with uh, some of the, the movements that the caller was talking about against, you know, financial institutions like JP Morgan and also big asset managers like BlackRock. And, you know, I've, I've been looking at BlackRock a little more in the last, the last couple of months, but, um, you know, one thing that BlackRock, which is, you know, the world's biggest asset manager, right, um, holds something like $9.6 trillion worth of assets under management. Um, and something they really try to do, right, is to say that we have the best interest of our, uh, of our investors at heart. And so we're just, you know, stewards, right, of this money, looking to put it in different places and uh, have fought quite actively against different types of regulation, against being declared, for instance, a systemically important financial institution, right? Um, and their sort of license to operate is premised, right, on uh, A, people just not really knowing very much about what they do, um, which is especially true, I think, of asset managers, um, maybe even more so than some of the big investment banks who finance fossil fuels. Uh, and that really keeps regulators off their back. So if you're a BlackRock, you really want very few people to be paying attention to the fact that, you know, you do have big stakes and major fossil fuel companies, right? You are helping fund this stuff and um, are, you know, really have your hands in a lot of, in a lot of pots. And so uh, activism, however, you know, can seem very scrappy, I think, in, in, in a lot of places have been to a lot of very small demonstrations um, to cover them. But that really does, you know, make, uh, make a difference to get the ear of um, regulators who otherwise, you know, will not pay attention to this. If somebody doesn't sort of raise it, there's no um, real mechanism for somebody at, at the SEC, um, at the Federal Reserve, right, to start sort of paying attention to this stuff. And I think we have this image, right, of the Federal Reserve as being, uh, being this sort of very removed body. It is, you know, technically an independent central bank, but, you know, it is also, in some sense, a political institution. It's not 
it's not insulated totally from, um, from, from the work of politics. And so um, work drawing attention to the financing of these institutions, I think really can make, um, put a lot of pressure, right, on, um, on the institutions themselves. But, you know, what I would, I would argue is probably um, the best end result of that is getting real regulations placed on major investment banks, placed on major asset managers um, to make sure that they are not financing these things, right? And there's a lot of low-hanging fruit um, at financial regulators, in part under sort of dodd frank powers, to be able to, you know, go after these these fossil fuel investments, right? Things like raising capital requirements so that institutions which have investments in fossil fuels have to have an equivalent amount outside of that, which really helped to disincentivize uh, ha having, you know, financing big fossil fuel projects, having large fossil fuel holdings. Um, that stuff can happen very quickly and doesn't require Congress. And those are the types of things that if the Biden administration wanted to, could do tomorrow. Uh, and so there's been good work. I, I you know, <laughs> will defer yeah. to good folks at Public Citizen uh, who, who've done work around this. BlackRock's big problem is raising attention. But all this to say, yeah, there's, I think there's a very close link between this sort of scrappy activism and, uh, and, and, and big scale changes. And I think people underestimate because of the U.S. political conversation is so narrowed by what can work in the Senate. I think people underestimate how people around the world um, are thinking about fossil fuel assets and the kind of risk that they actually present to many of the uh, big investors around the world. We're talking about actionable solutions for climate change with Kate Aronoff, staff writer at New Republic and co-author of Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. Jason Jacobs, host of the podcast My Climate Journey and Kendra Pierre-Lewis, climate reporter and producer of the podcast, How to Save a Planet. I want to get to a couple more uh, listener comments uh, here. Holly writes, individuals can and should help the climate crisis in every possible way. The single most important thing one person can do is vote for people at every level who will take bold climate action. And it is, in fact, the decades-long and continuing deliberate efforts of the fossil fuel and petrochemical companies to conceal the info they knew about climate change that is largely responsible for the crisis we are in. They need to drastically reduce production, including of plastics, and pay for natural system restoration and help to vulnerable communities that are most impacted. Sean writes, uh, I just read an article on Kenyan program to turn plastic into bricks with the fluctuation of the price on all lumber, especially during the COVID crisis. Why isn't this being introduced to the construction industry here as a way to drive down housing costs? And Thomas writes, setting a date for when we want to be carbon neutral will not succeed if the population as a whole doesn't start conserving fuel during World War II. My parents sacrificed, rationed, drastically reduced con consumption and won World War II in four years, earning the name The Greatest Generation now it's our turn. We have to embrace this ourselves. No government can reduce emissions enough without us. Um, Jason Jacobs, I wanted to ask you um, one more question. In your vision of the world in you know, 10 or 15 years, what do you think um, will most surprise us uh, looking at that time on a climate basis? Oh, man. Well, 10 or 15 years isn't very much time. So unfortunately, I, I think that that the symptoms are going to be a lot worse. Um, so, uh, and, and that won't surprise, I guess, the people that have been closest to it, but I think that'll surprise a, a bunch of the world that still has their uh, head in the sand. Um, what I'm hoping though, is what surprises us is how much progress we've made in getting our arms around it in a more 
uh, enduring way um, mm -hmm. uh, directionally, because I think momentum begets momentum. And, and I think we've been pushing it from so many different sides that I think once it really starts kicking and firing on all cylinders, I think the transition is going to happen a lot faster than, uh, than, than people fear. Um, yeah. that, that's yeah. my hope, at least. Kendra, what do you think? 10, 15 years, what's going to surprise us about what's changed? Um, I'm hoping the media does a better job of covering climate. Um, one of the things that your one of the listeners said when he said that the media often show up don't show up to his protests, that's actually a thing. It's known as a protest paradigm, um, which is in general that the media is biased against social protests. Um, and so I think we as an industry need to take a deeper look at the, what we're reporting and who we're reporting to and making sure that we're not in service to people in power. Um, and I think we part of that is having a broader public that holds us accountable. And so I'm really hoping that in the next 10 to 15 years, we have a more accountable media landscape. Yeah. And Kate, close with you with our last few seconds. I'll put on my, my more hopeful hat. And, uh, you know, I, th I hope in 10 to 15 years, people are surprised by just how much better decarbonization has made their lives, right? This has been talked about so for so long as an issue of sacrifice, but, you know, getting things like uh, you know, massive employment through uh, uh, mobilization for decarbonization, investing in our, our public spaces to make sort of beautiful parks and um, the other sorts of, sorts of things that can uh, really help sort of make our climate a better place and disincentivize certain forms of consumption that are, are bad for it. Um, you know, I think this could be a very good 10 to 15 years if we really take on this project yeah. at scale. And I, you know, I hope that's, that's what we're looking back at. And, uh, in, in, in yeah. that time. Thank you to Kate Aronoff, staff writer at The New Republic, Kendra Pierre-Lewis, climate reporter and producer of the podcast How to Save a Planet, and Jason Jacobs, host of the podcast My Climate Journey. We've been talking about actionable solutions for climate change. Stay tuned for more Forum with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.